I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Sobe is a drug maker focused on hemophilia, inflammation, and genetic and metabolic diseases. It's now pursuing its drug Orphidin, used to treat the metabolic disorder tyrosemia type 1, as a potential treatment for the metabolic condition alcaptinuria. It is also pursuing Kinneret, its drug for the rare inflammatory condition Nomid, as a potential therapy for Stills disease. We spoke to Rami Levine, president of North America for Sobe, and Len Walt, Vice President and Head of Medical Affairs for North America for SOBI, about the company's evolution, its growing pipeline, and its effort to expand indications for its rare disease drugs. Rami, Len, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're going to talk about SOBI, its focus on rare diseases, and, and in particular, its late-stage pipeline and how it's collaborated with patient groups and research institutes through a public-private partnership. For listeners, I thought, though, we could begin with SOBI itself. The name is actually an acronym that speaks to your rare disease mission. What is SOBI and why the rare disease focus? Um, that's a great question. So SOBI is actually a result of uh, an integration of two um, Swedish companies. The first one is Swedish Orphan, and that's, I think, the name that you're referring to. And the other one is um, Biovitru. Um, and the companies merged um, in back in 2010 to form Sobe. Um, the interesting thing is that um, while they were both Swedish companies, they're, they were very different type of companies. Biovitrum was your typical clinical research type of company, um, whereas Swedish Orphan, on the other hand, was more of a um, partnership type of company. They uh, they were a distributor uh, for rare disease products in Europe. Uh, so a very different business model. So when those two companies uh, integrated to form SOBI, and SOBI basically stands for Swedish Orphan, which was one company, and the BI stands for Biovitrum, um, the portfolio that resulted from that integration is a very diverse type of portfolio because it's the integration of the two portfolios from the two different companies. So if you look globally at SOBI, we have a mix of global products, uh, and those are the products that we sell here in North America. We have regional products by nature, which are a result of what Swedish Orphan brought in, such as uh, what we call the partner product. Um, and those are the distribution agreements that we have with, uh, with companies. And we have about 35 companies from 24 partners in that portfolio. Um, and we also have hemophilia, which is also a regional um, product for us by nature, and that's a result of collaborative work with Biogen, and Biogen market and sell the hemophilia products here in North America, and Sobe sells the hemophilia products in, in Europe. So if you look at the Sobe portfolio as a whole, it's a very frag or no fragmented, but it's a very diverse, diverse portfolio. Sobe is obviously a, a, a global organization, but you're running the, the North American division. Specifically, can you expand a little on, on what Sobe's doing in North America? Absolutely. Um, 
So we talked about SOBI globally here in North America. We're relatively a, a new organization. We were um, formed back in uh, mid-2012, started as a little tiny affiliate in Pennsylvania. In 2014, we moved to the Boston uh, area, and here kind of we started to expand and, and build not only our portfolio, but expand our organization, bring in high, high talent. Um, we focus here on, on three products that we have here approved, as we mentioned, it's Kinyard, it's Kepavent, and it's Orphidin. Um, and one of the key things that we understood very early on is definitely in the rare disease um, uh, space, um, it's it's the, the, the feedback from patients, the discussions with patients, the support of the patients is so critical um, that it's clearly more than just offering a medicine. Uh, and that's it. Um, and what we have done here is, together with input from patients and patient organizations, is actually set up patient support programs that not only do we offer the drug, but we actually um, support the patients, support the caregivers in, in the treatment and answering questions and any other support that we can offer. Uh, we've done that for Orphidin. We've done that Kinerid. We're, in fact, doing that for um, for um, for Kinerid in Canada as well. So that support is so critical, and when you hear these patient stories, um, you know they. You can imagine, you know, very few patients, you know, very few patients on a given disease. You can imagine one of our indications. There are about 150 patients in the U.S. They usually don't have anyone to talk to. No one has or has seen even the indication, and they just need to reach out and talk to somebody. So we're helping to connect. We're helping to support. Um, and that is so critical when you, you know, when you have no one to talk to. So that is such a key element in some of the activities that we do here. One of your your lead candidates right now is Orphidin, which you're pursuing as a, a treatment for Alcaptonuria or AKU. This is also known as black bone disease. Some people may know Orphidin as Nitisinone, which has had an interesting development history. It's long been tr used to treat a rare condition known as HT1, which you also sell the drug for. What is HT1? HT1 or tyrosinemia type 1, it's a rare autosomal recessive genetic metabolic disorder. And it's characterized by lack of a specific enzyme, uh, abbreviated as FAH, um, which is needed for the final breakdown of the amino acid tyrosine. And what happens in this condition is that there's a failure to properly break down the tyrosine. And it leads to an accumulation of a number of toxic metabolites. And these metabolites find their way into specific organs, um, mainly the liver. And it causes severe liver disease uh, and also cancer of the liver. It can also affect the kidneys and the central nervous system. So it really is a, a debilitating disease. Uh, and before the introduction of metizanone, uh, these poor kids, um, you know, really died um, in, uh, within the first months or years of their life. So um, it's, a, it's a debilitating disease that, um, that is now, thankfully, uh, very well managed by methizinone, um, you know, over the life of these patients. And what's really wonderful now is which this, this product has been around, you know, for 20 years or so. And we're now seeing patients who are into their 20s and having children of their own um, who have lived um, a, a relatively normal life uh, thanks to 
uh, in the prison and being available to these patients. If I'm not mistaken, about uh, 15 years or so ago, uh, an NIH researcher theorized that the same drug might have benefit for alcaptanuria. What is alcaptanuria and how does it relate to HT1, if at all? So it really does relate because everything um, relates to the um, the tyrosine degradation pathway, uh, which involves a number of steps and a number of enzymes. And, uh, you know, when one of these enzymes is missing, it causes problems. So the pisanone acts within this pathway. And, you know, we're now learning that it, it obviously works very well with HD1, but it could well have an important role to play in other diseases that have defects in the metabolic pathway of tyrosine. So alcaptanuria, or AKU, as it's abbreviated to, is a genetic disease as well, and it damages bones and cartilage, uh, causes very severe pain, and leads to a number of health problems such as osteoarthritis, heart disease, and also kidney infections. Uh, obviously, a, a rare disease, approximately 950 people worldwide have been identified with AKU. So we are now uh, involved in a clinical development program, which is being run uh, by a European consortium, uh, to see whether metuzanone can be used in this population of patients. Well, where are you in terms of advancing that towards the market? So the clinical trial is currently ongoing, and um, we're hoping that we're going to get a read on that clinical data uh, in in the pretty near future. At that point, we will know whether we have enough data to, uh, you know, to either move into a final stage of clinical development, which would be a phase three program, um, or not. So um, at this point, we're... Uh, you know, we're anxious to see what the data reveals once the clinical program has been completed so this and is all a, patients have been enrolled. This is a drug that's long been used off-label for AKU, and I know the, the AKU Society a few years back started to raise money to through crowdfunding to support some clinical studies. How did SOBI become part of the collaboration, and, and what role has it played? Um, well, it's actually... Sobi has played quite a significant role. They've been a founder member of, um, you know, of a group of hospitals that are engaged in treatment of AKU, and I say in, in Europe specifically, um, working with uh, you know, other consultancies, universities, biotech companies. So there is a consortium uh, that uh, that is multidisciplinary, uh, looking at this and. Uh, and so he's played a leadership role in this area because of the potential role that metuzanone could play uh, in this disease. And this disease is somewhat different to, to HD1. In HD1, obviously, is a far more acute disease. Um, uh, AKU patients can only could potentially only present with symptoms, you know, into their 20s and 30s. So it's a different approach in terms of managing this disease. I'm curious, what have you learned from this public-private partnership, and does it point the way for developing other drugs for diseases? So, you know, our, our approach towards 
public-private partnerships uh, is, is a very high priority, and, and we're looking at this uh, in all our development programs. We want to ensure that we are engaging with uh, patient associations, and we've done that in, uh, in all our programs, uh, if we have an opportunity to talk about those, um, as well as, as collaborating with uh, centers of excellence, um, and institutions and hospitals that have specific expertise in these areas. Um, a number of advisory boards have been um, uh, have been uh, um, struck as well, because as we know, these are rare diseases, and there are few treaters, relatively few treaters around the world, and the uh, the expertise is held within uh, within a small group of clinical and scientific experts. So it's essential that we tap into their expertise, they tap into ours, and, um, and, and we share the expertise in that way. Maybe just one additional thing to add. Um, it has always been our approach to collaborate with research centers and patient organizations. Um, one of the reasons we moved our um, initial uh, North American headquarters, which were based in Pennsylvania, we moved to the Boston area was exactly that, was exactly to be able to partner with um, you know, the main research institutions, the pharmaceutical and biotech industries in the area. Um, that was one of the main drivers that moved us to relocate our headquarters back in 2014. You're also pursuing a, a second drug, Kinneret, as a, a treatment for Stills disease. What is Stills disease? Yeah, Stills disease, uh, the, the, the term goes back many, many years. Um, but it, it essentially are a... Um, multi-systemic inflammatory disorders. And uh, what happens is there's an inappropriate activation of the, the innate immune system, and you get uh, an increase in number of inflammatory cytokines, such as uh, interleukin-1, IL-1, or IL-6. And um, Stills disease there's essentially occurs in both adults and children. And in children, it's known as systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and in the adults, it's known as adult-onset Stills disease. And uh, essentially, these are the same kinds of diseases, uh, just um, differed by the time of onset, whether it's in children or later on in young adults. And this disease manifests as daily spiking fevers, um, transient uh, cutaneous rashes, uh, lymphadenopathy, enlargement of the liver, um, inflammation of a number of organs, uh, you know, the lining of the heart, the lining of the lungs, and really just an overall um, an overwhelming inflammatory process. And so because uh, anakinra or kinaret uh, is a very effective IL-1 blocker, it essentially blocks the, the action of the interleukin cytokine. Um, the uh, uh, anecdotal data, and now obviously we're into a, a clinical trial, um, is, is the objective is to prove that um, it does have a clinical benefit in reducing the symptoms associated with still disease in both children and in adults. Kinerid is a, a biologic that you licensed from Amgen. It's a drug that was uh, approved for rheumatoid arthritis. It's already approved for another rare condition that you market, uh, Nomid. Um, what is that condition? Is it related? 
so once again, NOMAD is, um, uh, there is a, a spectrum of autoinflammatory disorders, and they're actually called CAPS or cryoporin-associated periodic syndromes. And there are three main kinds, um, familial cold inflammatory syndrome, Muckle-Well syndrome, and then the most severe form is called NOMAD, or neonatal onset multi-system inflammatory disease. Once again, the similarities that spread, spread across all these autoinflammatory diseases is there is uncontrolled inflammation, uh, which causes a number of, uh, of uh, severe health problems in these patients. In the case of, uh, of CAPS and NOMAD, there's once again systemic inflammation manifested by fever, rash, uh, but then there's also organ-specific manifestations in the severe forms of NOMAD, such as hearing loss, meningitis. They get increased intracranial pressure and very severe headaches. And this can lead to impaired vision as well. It has an impact on cognitive and intellectual uh, ability. So it really um, does affect a number of organs, and it's severely debilitating um, for these for these patients. It's interesting to me, you know, one of the challenges rare disease drug companies face is that they're pursuing very small markets. In both these cases, you have multiple indications you're pursuing for the same drug. Is that just good fortune or is that part of your strategic approach to drug development here? I can just quickly say, and I'll hand it over to Romy. I think from a medical scientific perspective, I think the important thing here and, and how we guide it is, is um, we are we are dedicated to meeting, uh, helping meet unmet medical needs for both patients and obviously the treating physicians. So um, you know we are we are in discussions with physicians all the time, uh, and they often approach us with with anecdotal data where they feel this could work. At the same time, we're looking at all these these diseases that have unmet medical needs that are you know, inflammatory in nature and we would want to understand, is this disease IL-1 driven? And if it is, then anakinra could play a significant role uh, in that patient group. I'll hand it to Rami now. Yeah, thanks, Len. And, and Danny, I, I mean, I, I would just add to that, that um, I think there's a key difference between a biologic and a chemical entity. And typically what we say in the pharma industry, that when you have a chemical entity, basically you look at, you look at a disease and you engineer a chemical product to address that 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 disease. Um, when it comes to biologics, it's exactly the other way around. You find a potential therapy and then you spend years in trying to identify potential indications to where it could it could work. And that's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly the type of products that we're looking at. So, you know, when we acquired uh, Kinnaird initially, you know, as an example, it was approved um, in RA. We've then expanded into NOMID. We're now looking at GAT. We're looking at stills. We're looking at a variety of other indications as well. And the same could be said about Orphidin. And that's just the type of, of work that's being done in biologics. You find the product, and then you search for a variety of different indications that it could work for. I want to ask you about one other experimental therapy in your in your pipeline. Uh, you're getting ready to move SOBI-1003, a, a treatment for MPS type 3A, uh, San Filippo syndrome, uh, which is a, a rare inherited lysosomal storage disease. Can you describe MPS3A or, or San Filippo syndrome? Sure. This, 
yeah, this is Len here again. So, you know, MPS3A or known as mucopolysaccharidosis type 3A, as you said, is a lysosomal storage disease, um, a rare disease, and it's a rare genetic condition caused by a shortage of the enzyme sulfamidase. And uh, the disease causes progressive disability and severe neurological deterioration, uh, often results in childhood death. Uh, there currently is no treatment available um, to help. Uh, let's say about 70% of children don't see their 18th birthday with this, this disease. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange disease because, you know, after an initial symptom-free interval, uh, then patients start to present with a slowing of development or behavioral problems, uh, often followed by progressive intellectual decline, and it can result in severe dementia and progressive motor disease. Um, and, you know, speech is often affected. These children have severe temper tantrums, hyperactivity, aggressive behavior. And, uh, you know, what makes it even you know, more difficult is that very often, you know, early on, there's no real physical, um, physical effect. So, you know, given their aggressive behavior, it could be really problematic. Uh, and then as it becomes more progressive, you know, these patients become immobile and unresponsive. Um, and, you know, the lifespan of an affected child usually does not extend beyond their late teens or early 20s. So, you know, a terrible disease, uh, really devastating for, for patients and their families. So the, the challenge for enzyme replacement therapy in this disease is getting it past the blood-brain barrier. What are you doing to address that? So the, the uh, obviously SOBO03 is the experimental compound that we're currently looking at. Uh, the stage we're at is in the preclinical stage. So we've produced a modified variant of the enzyme sulfamidase uh, and has shown promising results in the brains of animals. Obviously, the importance of you know getting to the site of action. So from a preclinical stage, it is very encouraging. Obviously, you know, the, the acid test in the next stage is to move into to first in human uh, and, and look at it from a number of perspectives, um, safety, efficacy, uh, that, you know, in the early stages of clinical development. So, you know, initial, initial signals are very encouraging, but obviously uh, before we move into humans, uh, you know, we, we're cautiously optimistic. Um, but is this but, being uh, is this being excited. delivered systemically, or is this through intrathecal delivery? How are you getting it to pass the blood-brain barrier? Does it migrate on its own? So um, it will be uh, administered IV, and uh, um, and it's moving through the blood-brain barrier that way. So that's that's what we know at the moment. Um, but um, you know, I think in terms of moving to, to next steps, the actual uh, mode of administration is still to be determined as to what will be the optimal moving from animal models into into the human. So this this particular disease is oddly a, an area with a competitive landscape. There's efforts to develop gene therapy. There are other companies pursuing enzyme replacement therapies. How does the competitive landscape shape your decision as to whether to advance an experimental therapy in the clinic. 
you know, I think if you look at a number of these disease areas, the competitive landscape is very active, um, both at the preclinical and the early clinical stage. But at the same time, you, know, you do know that there's a high rate of failure um, as, as you move into the clinical development phase. So, you know, I think we can be guided somewhat by by the competitive environment, but um, uh, you know, our focus is to to select the best possible candidate that we have um, that shows the greatest potential promise, and uh, and then put it into the appropriate patients at that point. Um, you know, it's an ever-changing landscape, rare disease and, and clinical development in general. And um, as I said, it's uh, no one. There's no crystal ball gazing. Um, so, you know, we, we can only control what we can control and focus on the best possible candidates based on the data that we're seeing preclinical and then in the clinic. I completely agree with Len. I mean, at the end of the day, what drives our decisions um, are patients and patient needs. And while there may be um, other products in clinical trials um, or products on the market, um, we basically evaluate every market and speak to patients, speak to physicians, and truly understand if what's out there addresses the needs. Clearly, if it's in clinical trial, there's a there's a huge uncertainty whether it will even reach the market. And I think that really is what drives our decisions. Len mentioned earlier ad boards. You know, we have patient ad boards. It's those type of conversations, those type of discussions that we have with patients that really make us decide whether this is an area that we should invest in. Because ultimately, every product that we bring to market, um, our intent is for it to address an area of unmet medical need that currently exists. Rami Levine, President of North America for SOBI, and, and Lem Walt, VP of Medical Affairs. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you very much, Danny. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.